0: Welcome to Storytime with Paul Doerr. This season of the podcast includes excerpts via live shows and in-studio recordings from my new book, I'm Leaving It and Other Stories. Some of the stories are true and some are not. I'll let you figure it out. But they all hopefully have my trademark charm Wit and profound wisdom. Purchase your copy of the entire book in paperback, ebook, or audiobook form at all major online booksellers. I also write a monthly newsletter that is both fun and insightful to subscribe to the newsletter or for further information about the book please visit palldor.com today's story Meditations. David Bowie burst into the cabin. The hinged spring slapped the plywood door shut behind him. Bowie from a ziggy stardust phase. He swung around and with liquid fluidity turned and pointed towards the window. The chicken wire covering the window lifted and three giant spiders from Mars jumped inside. They danced around and with David Bowie. I couldn't move, frozen on the hard bed. The door swung open again, and a tiny car backed inside. Clowns dived out of the car windows, crowding the room further. They did flips and twists around and with David Bowie. This dream was getting out of control, but it wasn't a dream. I noticed a giant frog in the shadows. How could I miss this frog? He was the size of a bulldog. I just stared the area under his chin expanding and contracting. I heard a cry of wolves in the distance. The dancing stopped. David Bowie, the spiders, and the clowns jumped out through the window. The frog remained. The door swung open again. A slimy hand grasped the door jamb. An equally slimy foot stepped on the squeaky floorboards. The skinny, pale body slithered across the room. The moon appeared from behind some clouds, illuminating the eyeless face and making the skin even paler. Its mouth displayed two rows of jagged teeth with red residue dripping off them, and it moved its long spidery fingers towards its face, covered where its eyes should be with the back of its hands and opened the palms. Eyeballs blinked at me. The frog's throat contracted. The pale man inched closer. This dream was becoming a nightmare, I was out in the woods at a meditation retreat, a little more than halfway through my allotted ten days. Things most certainly have gone awry. It didn't help that right before I arrived, I watched the movie Pan's Labyrinth, and it scared the wits out of me. I should say that both the frog and the pale eyeless man made an appearance in the film. It was one thing to see them on a movie screen, but totally different from having them starring in my own dream one that felt more real with each passing second. I knew that this was a dream. At least, lying in bed, I kept telling myself that. But at the same time, the pale man kept moving closer, and the frog kept staring. The bus ambled on down the dusty road. Living in Toronto, I forgot just how rural the surroundings quickly got once you left the outskirts of the city. We headed north, my direction vague at best. When I signed up for the 10-day Vipassana meditation retreat, I received an email that said to take the Barry Bradford Go bus and asked to be let off at a gas station outside Fennel's Corner. Since cellular reception was weak in the area, I was instructed to make a collect call from a payphone located at the station. After approximately 30 minutes, a volunteer from the meditation center would pick me up. As my cell phone reception dwindled and the kilometers between houses grew, The bus pulled into the gas station. I could just say I was mistaken, that this wasn't my stop, but I came this far, literally in the middle of nowhere, and the few other people on the bus stared at me with tired eyes, waiting for me to make a decision. Dust and dirt swirled around me in the wake of the bus. I watched it drive away, the road lonely and void of any other vehicles. Two women stood under the abandoned gas station awning, fanning themselves with magazines, Since there was no other reason for them to be there, I assumed they were waiting for the same ride. I approached and noticed that, although one was quite a bit older than the other, they both shared similar features. After introducing myself, the mother and daughter faces lit up when I inquired about whether they were heading to the meditation center. First time? Nervous?' the mother asked. They collectively giggled when I replied in the affirmative. "'We waited in the hot sun,' cutting through the silence was a car engine. An old sky-blue station wagon skidded into the gas station parking lot. A woman with long, unkempt white hair jumped out, informing us that she was indeed from the meditation center. Her large hands hefted our bags into the back of the station wagon. In the car, the three women conversed excitingly about the retreat. This was the mother-daughter team's third retreat. The driver eyed me in the rearview mirror, first time, you look nervous. I was nervous, but why was everyone asking me this? Should I be more nervous? I was nervous, but for other reasons. The summer I went to the retreat, I found myself at a crossroads, switching careers, looking at the world differently, trying to figure some things out for myself. I was told I needed Vipassana. In addition to the center outside of Toronto, Vipassana can be found all over the world. 10 in North America, 3 in Latin America, 8 in Europe, 7 in Australia and New Zealand, numerous sites in India and the Asia-Pacific, and 1 in each of the Middle East and Africa. Vipassana is one of India's most ancient techniques of meditation, and since the time of Buddha has been handed down by an unbroken chain of teachers. Considered a non-sectarian technique, the method has been practiced for more than 2,500 years. During the course, I respected the secular approach, that is, you didn't have to be a Buddhist to gain benefits, and also how modern psychological concepts were incorporated into the teachings. The ten-day retreat was completely free, including a place to sleep and meals. You basically went out to the woods and meditate for ten days in silence. It sounded cultish to me. Everything has a price. I wondered what was the catch. I regarded myself as a cynical and stubborn person, two attributes that kept me from exploring a lot of things, but also kept me out of trouble. It seems everything has its cultish tendencies nowadays, religion, politics, corporations, yoga. I like my extracurricular activities with no strings attached. I did my research and couldn't find any cultish connections to Vipassana. I decided to sign up, My application was accepted, and that's how I found myself riding in a station wagon out to a mysterious campground with three women talking excitedly about the adventures of the mind. We pulled into the meditation center and stopped at a small check-in booth. A gentleman with a clipboard dutifully checked off our names and assigned us cabin numbers. The mother-daughter team was dropped off first, and they wished me good luck. They told me not to be nervous, but it was too late, as due in large part to their inquiries, I found myself quite nervous. Men and women were segregated during the retreat and so we headed over to the other side of the camp. There were three kinds of sleeping quarters. First, a new addition to the camp was a building that had several small apartment like accommodations. Second, individual cabins for single room occupants. Third, double cabins that were made from plywood with glassless windows "'covered in chicken wire and which were only used in the summer "'due to the lack of insulation. "'I grabbed my bag and walked down a short dirt path "'to a semicircle of the third kind of cabin. "'Found my number and pulled open the door and stepped inside. "'The door slammed shut behind me with a bang, "'the hinges fixed with tight springs. Two single beds sat at either end of the cabin. "'A sheet hung from a wire divided the two areas.' Evidence of a roommate existed on the left side of the room. I dropped my bag on the dirty floor and sat on the hard bed. My home for the next ten days. This was starting to feel like a bad idea. Get your bearings, I thought. Outside, opposite my cabin, was the washroom. Running alongside our cabins was a plastic fence that separated us from a group of three other small buildings that housed maintenance equipment. Trees flanked along the remaining border. Other people were milling about, and although I got a few polite nods, no one was talking, and there was a general sense of nervousness in the air. Perhaps I was not the only one. I retraced my steps down the path and back to the dirt road. I came to a crossroads. Painted signs advertised one path towards the dining hall and another the meditation hall. I followed my stomach to the dining hall, people loaded supplies at the side of the building. I took a quick look inside and saw a standard mess hall with long tables and uncomfortable looking chairs. I followed the path around the dining hall through the woods and came to a clearing in front of the meditation hall, a similar building but one that I couldn't peek into. The buildings all seemed to share the same architect. A loud gong rang The man who checked us in banged on a metal gong hanging from the limb of a giant tree in the center of the clearing. The gong signified that we were to meet in the dining hall. People approached from all different paths, and we filed inside. The manager of the center introduced herself and provided the lay of the land. The schedule consisted of getting up every day at 4.30 a.m. to meditate for two hours, break for breakfast and meditate some more, break for lunch and meditate some more, break for a light snack, and meditate some more. You get the idea. At the end of each day, there was a lecture and in bed by 9 p.m. I am not a morning person. I don't want to talk to anyone in the morning, and no one wants to talk to me, at least not before I had a coffee. That's the other item the manager went over, the code of discipline. From the website. Vipassana is not a rite or ritual based on blind faith. Neither an intellectual nor a philosophical entertainment, not a rest, cure, a holiday, or an opportunity for socializing, not an escape from the trial and tribulations of everyday life. Vipassana is a technique that will eradicate suffering, a method of mental purification that allows one to face life's tensions and problems in a calm and balanced way, and an art of living that one can use to make positive contributions to society the first rule of vipassana is that you undertake the following five precepts for the duration of the course abstain from killing any being abstain from stealing abstain from all sexual activity abstain from telling lies and abstain from all intoxicants the second rule of vipassana is for the student to declare themselves willing to comply fully and for the duration of the course with the teacher's guidance and instructions Observe the discipline and meditate exactly as the teacher asks, without ignoring any part of the instructions, nor adding anything to them. This acceptance should be one of discrimination and understanding, not blind faith. The third rule of Vipassana is the discontinuation of all forms of prayer, worship, or religious ceremony. For example, fasting, burning incense, counting beads, reciting mantras, singing or dancing. All other meditation techniques and healing or spiritual practices should be suspended. This is not to condemn any other technique or practice, but to give a fair trial to the technique of Vipassana in its purity. The fourth rule of Vipassana is all students must observe noble silence from the beginning of the course until the morning of the first full day. The fourth rule of Vipassana is all students must observe noble silence from the beginning of the course until the morning of the last full day. Noble silence means silence of body, speech, and mind. Any form of communication with fellow students, whether by gestures, sign language, written notes, is prohibited. The fifth rule of Vipassana is the complete segregation of men and women. Couples, married or otherwise, should not contact each other in any way during the course. The sixth rule of Vipassana is the suspension of physical, yoga, and other exercises during the course. Jogging is also not permitted. Students may exercise during rest periods by walking in the designated areas. The seventh rule of Vipassana is dress should be simple, modest, and comfortable, tight, transparent, revealing or otherwise striking clothing should not be worn. Sunbathing and partial nudity are not permitted. This is important to minimize distraction to others. The eighth rule of Vipassana is students must remain within the course boundaries throughout the ten days. No outside communications is allowed before the course ends. This includes letters, phone calls, and visitors. Cell phones, pagers, and other electronic devices must be deposited with the management until the course ends. In case of an emergency, a friend or relative may contact management. The ninth rule of Vipassana is the restriction of musical instruments, radios, and reading or writing materials. Students should not distract themselves by taking notes. The restriction on reading and writing is to emphasize the strictly practical nature of this meditation. In a sense, nothing, except ourselves. After a day, I understood. You didn't need any of this stuff at the center. My reliance on external items such as cell phones and worrying about what I was going to wear quickly fell away. I wanted to talk to someone about these rules. At the time, I felt they were a little excessive. That was one more item the manager went over. Once we entered the meditation hall, the first time, We were not allowed to talk until the end of the retreat. Noble silence. Did I mention it was ten days long? Ten days with no talking, not a word. As we made our way over to the meditation hall and moved into silence, I had a few final words that I spoke very quietly to myself. Those words were, Oh shit, what have I gotten myself into? The bell rung in the furthest ether of my imagination, a dull, far-off throbbing that searched for me and became louder with every clang. Still dark outside, freezing inside, I stumbled out of bed wondering where I was and what happened to the sun. I looked through the chicken-wired window at a solitary person carrying a lantern and banging a bell. The vision slowly walked around the perimeter of the cabins, ringing the bell before each door. Shivering, I put on almost every piece of clothing with me, a miscalculation on my part. I assumed that since it was the middle of summer, I didn't think I needed many clothes. But out here in the woods, I quickly realized that the warm mornings and sweltering afternoons translated into cold nights, freezing cold. And obviously, little to no insulation was built into the cabins made of plywood and chicken wire. I certainly wouldn't have any trouble with rule number seven regarding tight, transparent, or revealing clothes. As I walked along the path to the meditation hall, others joined me. We resembled the walking dead. Zombies waking up from dreams, unable to sleep, madly limping along, half asleep and still dreaming. My watch read 4.25 a.m. I can't remember ever waking up at this time. Staying up until this time, sure. Something inside me questioned the sanity of waking up voluntarily. Everyone else was doing it, I rationalized. We can't all be collectively crazy, can we? Men and women entered the meditation hall on separate sides. We filed in silently and found our allotted mat and pillow. Luckily, mine was located at the rear of the room, which gave me the added ability to lean my back against the wall. A weakness of mine that I was worried about was the inability to sit cross-legged for any length of time, clearly a problem when it comes to meditation. In the foyer, there was a large closet with extra pillows. Every time I walked in, I grabbed a new pillow. I started off sitting on one, scored with two tiny pillows that I placed under each knee. Soon, I sat on three pillows, had one under each knee and covered myself in a blanket I acquired on the third day. The blanket especially came in handy at 4.30 in the morning when I didn't want anyone to see my face. My body adapted quickly, changed almost immediately. It was truly amazing to witness as my physical body completely streamlined into what my mind asked of it. Body, my mind said. Look, we need to shut you down for a while. Run you on the backup generators while we charge the main battery. Don't worry, we'll run you at a functional level. Eat, sleep, and shit. That's all you need to be concerned about. The teachers entered the room, a man and a woman, who I later learned were husband and wife. The man was tall, lanky, and sported a Kramer-esque shock of hair that pointed straight up. I came to call him the Audiovisual guy, or AV guy for short. He never said a word, simply sat on his platform at the front of the class and pressed play on the CD player. Through the speakers came... Singing, but not any type of singing I ever heard. Guttural, from the chest, phlegm sounding. The singing or chanting were taken from the collections of discipline and discourses of the Pali canon, the language of the earliest Buddhist scriptures. This singing went on for a while, and a gray voice introduced the meditation technique. This was none other than S.N. Goenka, the latest in a lineage of teachers who Preserved and spread the technique from generation to generation. He asked us to concentrate on the area between our nostrils and upper lip. Forget everything else. Just focus on this area, the breath that comes out of the nostrils and any sensations that occur. And that was it. I sat cross legged, thinking about the area between my nostrils and upper lip. I thought about it, pondered it. Nothing happened. Sat there for two hours, bored out of my mind. You could feel the people around you. The man beside me was old and, through a special request, had a chair to sit on. I wanted a chair. It didn't help that he uncontrollably kept farting for the rest of the week. Not smelly farts, but still. Eventually, the guttural singing started up again, and the sitting was over. No cosmic change yet. The routine settled in. After this first meditation sitting, most people went to eat breakfast. I decided to return to my cabin and quickly shower while it wasn't busy. Made my way over to the dining hall and had my breakfast. Oatmeal, prunes and tea. Decaffeinated tea. I never ate prunes before this and have not had them since. Only old people enjoyed prunes. And did they enjoy them? I became addicted. Loved the prunes. I'm not big on small talk, but it was strange to be sitting with so many people while no one was talking. We all just stared at our prunes. During the breaks, I walked. Down the path that led to the main road, down the road towards the meditation hall, circle around back to my cabin area. Repeat. Five laps and change direction. Other walkers took to the paths. Since I couldn't speak to anyone, since they couldn't tell me about their lives, I started judging. A favorite pastime of mine. I didn't think this was against the rules, but could be classified as a negative sort of thought when attempting to have noble silence of the mind. The older guy who looked like he stepped out of a lawyer's office, the long-haired hippie, the ex-con. Judging other people based on their looks was wrong, but how else to get through the day? The next sitting was mid-morning. After this, we broke for lunch. The food was incredible. Lunch was the big meal of the day. All vegetarian, all freshly made, with spices grown on the property. The volunteers in the kitchen were led by an intense-looking man who had to feed almost 100 people with a kitchen the size of the one in my apartment. By the end of the 10 days, we feasted on the likes of miso soup, pasta, rice herbal bread, lots of salad, lots of tofu, vegetables, lentils, tempa, chard, pickled beets, noodles, spinach curry, spinach fried rice, spinach by itself, beans, squash, and fruit. Not my usual diet, but it's incredible what you are capable of eating when in the woods silently doing nothing. With a spread like that, I usually would stuff myself until I could no longer talk, but I took just enough to fill my gullet. Walk some more, and the afternoon sitting allowed us the option of being in the meditation hall or remaining in the cabin. I ended up falling asleep in my cabin. There was no dinner, only afternoon tea and fruit. I figured this would not be enough, but from the first day, I never felt hungry at night. The fruit and tea were more than enough. Sometimes I had an apple. Sometimes I had an orange. This was about the most difficult decision I had to make on a day-to-day basis. More walking and another sitting in the early evening. At the end of the night, a television rolled into the meditation hall. The A.V. guy pushed play, and we watched and listened to a lecture from Goenka. A man with a strong presence, even through the TV, and with a happy disposition. He laughed a lot and told stories. He always began the lecture by saying, Day two is over. Eight more days left. Thanks, like we needed reminding. After the lectures, bedtime. All told, we meditated for ten hours in total per day. Sleep did not come easy. The body might have been functioning at a bare minimum, but the mind was awake. Even if I wasn't aware of it yet, things were changing, realigning, restructuring. Sleep, wake, meditate, walk, eat, chit, repeat. The first three days were somewhat repetitive. That was the idea. On the fourth day, everything changed. The two concepts that stick with me to this day and which I still attempt to figure out is impermanence and equanimity. Goenka discussed impermanence in many of his discourses. When one experiences personally the reality of one's own impermanence, only then does one start to come out of misery. If one tries to possess and hold on to something that is changing beyond one's control, then one is bound to create misery for oneself. Commonly, one identifies suffering with unpleasant sensory experiences. Still, pleasant ones can equally be causes of misery if one develops an attachment to them because they are equally impermanent. Attachment to what is ethereal is certain to result in suffering. In a sense, he was talking about the art of dying, that many of these things we deem essential as we live are impermanent, including our physical body. The cynical side of me understands that this is a difficult concept to fully appreciate. On an intellectual level, I have thought that we must look at the unpleasant things in life, try to work them out, and by exploring these ugly aspects of human nature, come to some kind of greater understanding. On a practical level, this is damn hard. Koenka continued, This is not a path of pessimism. The technique teaches us to accept the bitter truth of suffering, but it also shows the way out of suffering. For this reason, it is a path of optimism combined with realism. Each person has to work to liberate himself or herself. This is not a dogma to be accepted on faith, nor a philosophy to be accepted intellectually. You have to investigate yourself to discover the truth. Accept it as valid only when you experience it. Hearing about truth is essential, but it must lead to actual practice. Equanimity stems from being aware of how you are functioning internally. During the ten days, we were learning to sit quietly and listen to the inner workings of our bodies and minds, attempting to create some sense of balance between all the elements of who we are and how this translates into our interactions with our internal and external worlds. Koenka continued, Whenever a difficult situation arises in life, one who has learned to observe sensations will not fall into blind reaction. Instead, he will wait a few moments remaining aware of sensations, and then will make a decision and choose a course of action. Such an action is certain to be positive because it proceeds from a balanced mind. It will be a creative action, helpful to oneself and others. Gradually, as one learns to observe the phenomenon of mind and matter within, one comes out of reactions, because one comes out of ignorance. The habit pattern of reaction is based on ignorance. Someone who has never observed reality within does not know what is happening deep inside, does not know how he reacts with craving or aversion, generating tensions that make him miserable. Hammering woke me. Ordinarily, this kind of thing annoyed me. I started to awake out of sleep before the bell sounded. I stepped outside and found the source of the hammering. On the other side of a fence separating our cabins from the maintenance area, a man worked away laying some plywood. From what I could tell, he was building another storage cabin. He hammered away, either not aware or not caring that it was 4.30 in the morning. Zombies walked to the meditation hall. Every morning we looked less and less like zombies. My imagination might have been playing tricks, but my fellow meditators seemed fresher and livelier. The morning meditation went off as usual. At breakfast, the prunes were especially delightful. Our next sitting started a new phase. After singing, Goenka announced that this began the sitting of strong determination. A slight change in technique brought on internal chaos that not all of us could handle. He referred to this change as us performing surgery on ourselves. According to Goenka from the lecture on day 4, Sankara, a mental reaction, is a seed that is made from every moment, a reaction with likes or dislikes, cravings or aversion. There are reactions that make a very light impression and are eradicated almost immediately. Those that make a slightly deeper impression and are eradicated after a little time and those that make a deep impression and take a very long time to be eradicated. At the end of a day, if one tries to remember all the sankhara that one has generated, one will be able to recall only the one or two that made the deepest impression during the day. And like it or not, at the end of life, whatever sankara has made the strongest impression is bound to come up in the mind. And the next life will begin with a mind of the same nature, having the same qualities of sweetness or bitterness. We create our own future by our own actions. Vipassana teaches the art of dying, how to die peacefully, harmoniously. And one learns the art of dying by learning the art of living, how to become master of the present moment, how not to generate sankhara at this moment, how to live a happy life here and now, If the present is good, one need not worry about the future, which is merely a product of the present, and therefore bound to be good. With our minds, we scan from the top of the head down to our toes, find the pesky sankara, puncture it, and allow it to be released from us. I finally understood why we focused on the area between our upper lip and nostrils. The idea was to sharpen our minds and concentrate on one area, So when we moved throughout our body, we could zero in and move about internally. During the sitting of strong determination, we were not allowed to move or open our eyes, no matter how uncomfortable. As soon as we started, someone from the front screamed for help. My eyes remained closed. Some rumblings about. My eyes remained closed. I sensed the person was escorted from the meditation hall. My eyes remained closed but desperately wanted to open. My open anguish was apparent so the external person asking for help fell so far outside of my body that he ceased to exist. My cynicism stopped being a problem. There was no spiritual awakening, no religious epiphany. But what did happen was my body exploded in images. A movie played in front of my closed eyes, with main characters looming large and supporting actors receding. No longer in a meditation hall somewhere out in the woods. Nowhere, really. Floated, flew... It felt as though someone dropped a giant vat of jello on my body, but I didn't mind, even if I didn't like jello. And the singing returned, and the first sitting of strong determination finished. I left in a daze, a haze over my mind, my eyes seeing the trees and the path and my cabin and my bed, but seeing them in a somewhat confusing way. During the optional midday meditation, which I skipped, I stood watching the man hammering away. This wasn't meditating, but sort of. He had the base of the cabin finished. Four walls waited for a roof. It was hot, sweat dripped from his brow. More surgery the next day. During the afternoon sitting, we are allowed to approach the AV guy in groups of three and ask any questions or field any concerns. I had no questions or concerns. I just wanted to remember what it was like to talk. We got one question each, and the AV guy's response was always the same. Just follow the technique. I attempted to throw in a follow-up question, but he wouldn't have it. The idea of not talking was so we could truly focus on ourselves, keep things internal. Silence and the relatively simple techniques created a powerful paradigm that unclogged the mind and allowed things to flow freely. I think they offered you the chance to ask questions to make sure everyone was doing okay mentally. Shingles were being hammered into place on the roof of the new cabin. Later in the day, he added a coat of red paint that matched the rest of the cabins. Three days this man worked on that cabin, and now it was finished. He could step back and see the results of his efforts. Watching this man build the cabin had a finality to it. When do you stop renovating your brain? You have completed day seven, Cuenca said. Three more days to go. Again, thanks for reminding us. Day seven felt more like day 700. This was around the time I felt things slightly slipping. Although the technique was meant to sharpen your mind, make things more transparent, I felt foggier. The fog thickened. Sleeping was almost entirely out of the picture. I lay awake, sensitive to every little noise, creak, broken branch, slight gust of wind, footsteps, rustle of leaves, The wolves sounded their cry every night and circled my cabin. I was afraid to look through the chicken-wired covered windows out of fear sharp claws would rip my face off. This was no way to live, and in my mind, counterintuitive to the reasons of me being at this retreat. Wasn't this supposed to relax me, clear my mind, allow me ten days away from the clutter and noise of the city? That's when the door of the cabin slammed open and David Bowie appeared. Followed by the spiders and clowns, the giant frog in the shadows, the eyeless man with the chiseled teeth, I cried out, screw the rules, or I might have just cried out in my dream. I couldn't even ask my roommate for help. But this was a dream, or was this really happening? As the pale man stepped closer, I followed the advice of Indiana Jones at the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark. I closed my eyes. This would make everything go away. The next thing I remembered was the wake-up bell. Convinced it was all a dream, I went about my morning routine. As everyone ate breakfast, I headed towards the shower. I turned the water on but didn't notice at first the frog sitting in the corner of the shower stall. Although it was a normal-sized frog, I nearly jumped. It just stared at me the entire time until I finished. This could have been a coincidence. After all, we are out in the woods and there was a stream running beside our cabins. A frog could have easily found its way in here, but this was my rational brain talking, a part of my mind that was slowly losing grip. At least there were no clowns, no Ziggy Stardust, no spiders, and especially no pale man. My space in the meditation hall was becoming a pillow mountain. The days ran together, my mind in a state of mushy contemplation. This was never going to end, The rest of my life was going to be spent inside the routine. On the eighth day, everything broke apart. During the sitting of strong determination, my will snapped. Again, nothing resembling a giant fireball of epiphany, just a slow popping of intimate somethings. Little did I know that change was happening incrementally. A simple idea emerged. A concept that should have been obvious in my outside life but for some reason went unseen. Everyone, and I mean everyone in my life, no matter if it was merely a walk-on part, appeared. They all crowded into the meditation hall, and we just stood there looking at each other. It was at this moment that I realized I was loved. Even now, I hesitantly write this word loved, but I find no other way to put it. Everyone stared, said nothing. We couldn't, noble silence but the most important people in my life looked on with love in their eyes. It was also at this moment when all the tension and angst left my body. My shoulders slumped from the release. I just let go, let it all pour out of me. Tears flowed, silent tears that I didn't wipe, that I let come. For perhaps the first time in my life, I didn't care what anyone else thought, because I was loved. The man finished painting a second coat on the cabin. On the second-to-last day, he loaded it with tools, work clothes, and a riding lawnmower. The storage cabin was new, but fit in with the rest. There was nothing left to do but make use of it. We piled into the meditation hall for our last sitting. At the end of the sitting, Goenka lifted our noble silence, and once out of the meditation hall, we were allowed to talk. As we filtered out of the hall, no one said a word. We were in shock. What do we have to say? We just smiled. When I finally did talk to my roommate, my throat was hoarse, my voice crackling. It sounded funny to me. My judgments about most of the people around me were wrong. I learned that my roommate came from a hardline Catholic upbringing. He always believed in what the church had to say about life and where you go when you die. But these beliefs have been firmly challenged after this week. All this talk of Stored Sankara and impermanence and how our life was one long lineage of individual moments that evolved and continued seemed to make sense to him. Although he had more questions than answers, he seemed at peace with this. At lunch I spoke with the middle-aged corporate lawyer Lookalike. He told me a story about how he was CEO of a large charity. He had a wife, children, a nice salary, big house, fancy car. It was never enough and he started taking drugs, which led to an addiction to crack. Lost his wife, children, salary, house, car, just out of rehab a few months previously. These 10 days were hard, but he made it. The old farting man told me another long story about his hard life of poverty, about how he always shut people out. He started studying martial arts, and the instructor told him, your body is impenetrable, you need Vipassana. He signed up. When we burst into the dining hall for lunch, there was a party waiting for us. The tone was completely different. Everyone that helped in the kitchen met us with smiles. Before, it felt like they were ignoring us, but I assumed this was part of their instructions. They were genuinely happy for us, because they knew the feeling. They all had gone through the course and knew what was on the other side. My cynical outlook took another hit. No one tried to solicit anything. No one tried to sell us anything. In the corner of the room, a small desk was set up, and we could give a donation if we felt compelled. That was all they asked from us. They just really wanted to help people. I returned to the city. Every telephone wire buzzed. Every leaf rustled. The voices in the crowd all separated. I sensed every detail. Every noise was specific. Equanimity. Impermanence. My awareness was sharp, but I was not overloaded. I heard every detail, but didn't feel burdened. And in all that noise, in all that clutter, there was silence. The silence separated from the noise. The silence spoke. The silence said, I was loved. Thank you for listening. Again, if you'd like to purchase a copy of I'm Leaving It or any of my other books, they are available at most online booksellers. The live performances were originally performed and recorded at the monthly storytelling event, Stories We Don't Tell. To learn more about Stories We Don't Tell, head over to storieswedonttell.org. For everything else, please visit pauldor.com.